0: Cultivating Place is made possible in part by generous support from the Cato Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Seen in overview, the 30 by 30 conservation efforts at federal and state levels are tremendous. But as the last two weeks' conversations have made clear, it's at the landscape and local levels that these conservation efforts work or don't work, get done, and ideally get done as thoroughly and thoughtfully as possible. This week, we focus in on one specific and historic project at least 50 years in the making, the undamming of the majestic Klamath River, which runs from Oregon down into California and into the Pacific Ocean. The final approval for the removal of a series of hydroelectric production dams, whose installations date from the early to mid-1900s, was finally won in November of 2022. Dam removal is set to begin in 2023. This week, we speak with two people engaged in preparing for the revegetation of more than 2,000 acres that will be re-exposed following the draining of the dam basins. We're in conversation with Yurok tribal member, civil engineer, water rights and cultural sovereignty activist Brooke Thompson, and Joshua Chenoweth, restoration ecologist working for the Yurok tribe in the many-year planning and implementation process. Brooke and Joshua, it is such a pleasure to be speaking with you about this monumental and meaningful work. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So I want to start out with you two introducing yourselves more specifically and a little more personally as well. I'm going to start off with you, Joshua, because you were the first one that I was connected with regarding the work that you are doing for the Yurok tribe in this next chapter of the Klamath River's life. Tell us about your your job title. um, A tiny bit, just like briefly about the job itself, but more importantly, how plants figure in your life personally at this stage in your life, because we'll unpack your actual work as we go deeper into the conversation.
1: Sure. Um, so my title, my official title for the Yurok tribe is senior riparian ecologist. I like to think of myself more as a restoration botanist. Um, That's the work I've been doing for the last 20 some odd years. Um, And specifically in this job, I am in charge of all of the revegetation planning for the Klamath Dam Removal Project, which includes invasive species management, propagation to make sure we have enough plants to uh, revegetate the over 2000 acres that will be exposed um, when they drain the reservoirs, um, and to monitor that, um, that work. To make sure that it's successful, um, I actually got into this work through gardening. This is my second career. Uh, when I was in my twenties, I worked in television in New York City, and was a pretty miserable job. I so I didn't, I was not very happy. And gardening in my little Brooklyn house that actually had a backyard, if you can uh, believe that, I bought, I bought a house there that for two hundred thousand dollars, if you can believe that, in the nineties. And there was a yard that was a complete mess and converted into a garden as a sort of escape from the city life. Got uh, trained as a horticulturist through Brooklyn Botanic Gardens. And that experience um, basically put me on this new trajectory. I was was hooked. I was hooked on plants.
0: Awesome.
1: And so as a result, I, I moved west, took a volunteer job with Olympic National Park, got a master's in restoration ecology. And led the Elwha Dam Removal Project, doing the same work that I described for the Klamath.
0: Oh, that's great! So you are a restoration botanist with a gardener's heart. I love that. Let's move to you, Brooke, and give us the way you like to uh, identify your your titles and um, your association with this project, as well. Just briefly, because we'll unpack all of that as we move forward. But also perhaps how plants in their places figure in your in your life.
2: Yeah. So I guess I'll start out by my titles being I'm from the Yurok and Corduk tribes, which are sister tribes in Northern California. I'm enrolled in the Yurok tribe and I'm currently a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz, studying environmental studies. And I also have a master's in water resource slash environmental engineering from Stanford University and a BS in civil engineering with a minor in political science from Portland State University. And my current role is as a restoration engineer for the Yurok tribe. So I help out with many different components of what the tribe is doing to make better streams and restoration projects. And one of those components is Helping Joshua with the revegetation and the dam removal. And my current, I guess, how plants fit into my life, it's more so like how don't plants fit into my life. I feel like for me, we've always been taught that we have a unique relationship and partnership with plants, and that there are friends and relatives. And so, for example, growing up, I was always told that you don't just walk down the street and pick up random plants and throw them around for fun. You always ask the plant if it's okay to pick it while you're picking it. And you say, thank you for the plant for giving you what it's given you. And that, you know, I guess my relationship is that the plants are my friends. And, you know, I feel like it's just something I need in my life on a daily basis. And I'm just very happy to be privileged enough to help the Yurok tribe and this project with the dam removal.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Joshua already started us down the line of the the kind of people and places and plants that grew him into a person who would end up in this work and on this project. Uh, so I'm going to stay with you, Brooke. And, you know, when you uh, sat on a panel with me at the conservation conference in October, you shared some of these beautiful stories. But, you know, take us back a little bit Um uh, to your earliest influences and the, the people and places and plants that grew you into a, a very accomplished human with a string of advanced degrees all headed towards this kind of advocacy on behalf of uh, the Yurok tribe currently, but clearly, you know, a, a lot of uh, cultural and Native advocacy at this level.
2: Absolutely. So for me, one of the plants that was really instrumental in my life was a redwood tree. My dad had me plant when I was five years old. So we have land in Plymouth, California, and pretty much my dad, who helped replant trees in the forest for work sometimes, he gave me a little old redwood seedling and we, he had me dig a hole. He had me put the seedling in the ground and compact it with dirt all around in the area where we were staying at the time on our land and water it every few days. I would come and anytime we were done fishing for salmon on the Klamath River, there is a lot of blood mixed with ice water in the ice chest. So we would always use that water and water the tree with it. And so the redwood tree now 20 years later is maybe seven times my height I'm (laughs) five two and towering over me and it's something I feel connected with because every time I visit my land in California I help clean off all the vines that tried to creep up it I've talked to it and making sure it does okay and it sometimes feels like a reflection in my own life how well the tree does and how well I'm doing and so for me, that's one of the really strong connections I have, and feeling that I have a specific connection to a plant or area. In addition to redwood trees being considered spiritual for Yurok tribal members, because we don't kill them specifically traditionally, we wait for them to fall over when we're making our canoes, which are made out of redwood trees. And in the redwood canoe, we carve out lungs, a heart, eyes, kidneys. And we believe that canoes have a spirit that are made out of the redwood trees. And that's why we give them all those body parts because our saying is that if it doesn't have a heart, then it will sink and it won't protect you the right way. So yeah, those are just some ways that I feel especially connected to Sequoia redwood trees.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And I love that um, kind of synergy of the the fish and the blood and the river and and the tree and you all in this um, beautiful um, web. Um, So take us on a little bit later in your journey uh, and what led you to um, environmental studies, civil uh, engineering, and the current work you are doing, which I believe really incorporates all of these grounded connections that you just described through that one story, Brooke. It is about water, it is about land, it is about ecosystems, and it is about the people.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, you can't have plants without water, right? So it's very much interconnected. But for me, when I was seven years old, two years after this tree planting, in the summertime, the morning after one of the ceremonies my tribe has, for pretty much focusing on renewing the world, we were told to come outside and to look at the river because something was going on. And so in the morning time, I walked out with my mom and my dad. I remember holding my mom's hand and going on the rocky shore of the Klamath River and seeing thousands and thousands of salmon dead along the shores of the Klamath River. And for me as a seven-year-old, this was especially devastating because I I have been taught that these salmons are connections to my ancestors, that the because we've lived on this river for thousands of years since time immemorial, these salmon are the descendants of my ancestors who had a relationship with these salmons in the same way I have a relationship with that redwood tree, who took care of these salmon's ancestors to make sure they could survive and be there. So me and my family and my future family could have a food source and have this connection as well. And- it was just gone. The entire generation of salmon for me was just gone in a matter of 24 hours. Mm. And as a seven-year-old, you know, you're in that phase where you just question everything and you annoy your parents by asking, why is this happening? Why is that? And for me, I was, you know, why, why did these salmon die? Why did this happen has to happen? What could we have done to prevent this? What can we do to prevent this? And I have I kept asking these questions over and over again throughout my life. And as I started to get to the point where I was deciding on a career in high school, civil engineering was one of those ways I could find answers. And I always had a strong affinity to science and engineering, but the fact that in civil engineering, I could go into water and really understand how these decisions are made, why they're made and what we can do to change them, set me on this lifelong path of these degrees to understand water and policy better, to understand exactly why this fish kill happened and to try to make sure it never happens again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Joshua, let's move back to you. Can you give a little bit of history of first the damming of this river? and some of the many consequences that have radiated out from that, uh, some of which Brooke just shared with us.
1: So there are four dams on the Klamath River that are um, going to be removed. These dams are all hydroelectric dams. They do not provide flood control or um, agricultural water to anyone in the region. They're exclusively for power production. The oldest dam, I believe, was, I think, in the ni- early 1900s. So I'm not exact. I, I can't remember the exact date. 1903. 1903. Okay. So over 100 years. The other three dams uh, came in, in the I think, in the 50s. I'm not 100% sure about Copco 2, which is the smallest. Uh, it's kind of just a diversion dam. So the... Three of the dams are, are rather large and create um, big lakes. Uh, and those lakes are located in, a pretty, uh, in an area that's pretty warm in the summer. They're in uh, the upper watershed of the Klamath has um, lots of water impacts that, uh, that are not tied to these dams that affect the reservoirs. Uh, mostly there's uh, a lot of cattle grazing and farming going on. So the nutrient inputs are really high and that uh, result of that uh, is a they, they these nutrients accumulate in the reservoirs and uh blue green algae um uh, blooms uh, occur and uh affect water quality for the entire river mm. um mm. the dams also um have the obvious impact of blocking fish passage uh, so um i can't remember the total number of, of miles but um there's a lot of uh Um, historic habitat that is now blocked to salmon, including several important cold water refugia. Um, and That is uh, side channel um, tributaries that have uh, the ideal cold water needed for salmon uh, that are important both for keeping the upper watershed cool um, in the main stem of the river, but also as um, a place for salmon to get out of the main stem um, during periods of warm weather. Um, so these dams are blocking that they are, uh, the blue green algae does, uh, produce a toxin, um, that is, uh, hazardous to, uh, animals and humans and actually reaches levels that are considered above, um, healthy, uh, for humans all the way down to the mouth of the river throughout the summer, um, which is 190 miles away, um, So as you can imagine, there's gonna be a lot of benefits for removal. Um, There'll be less habitat for the blue-green algae. So we expect a major reduction in um, toxins and there'll be an opening of habitat and hopefully a cooling of the river and, and certainly more access to these cold water refugia.
0: This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation this week with Yurok tribal member and civil engineer, Brooke Thompson, and Joshua Chenoweth, restoration ecologist, working for the Yurok tribe on the revegetation, planning, and planting following the four dam removal on the Klamath River. From plant surveys to species selection, seed collecting, and seed and seedling production, we'll be back for more from Joshua and Brooke about this hopeful, and historic reversal of one sacred river's disruptive damming. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. So Brooke's story of the redwood tree she planted with the help of her father when she was young, and it being a companion and measuring stick as it were, mirroring her own growth and well-being. This really captured my imagination, and I wonder how many of us have lifelong plant relationships against which we can measure our lives. I feel like we should all have such a gift of a relationship. And I feel like it's up to us, the plant people of the world, to keep working towards this being as important a developmental marker in our cultural values and cultural literacy as any other marker. Think what could flow and grow from that value from that measuring. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Yurok tribal member and civil engineer Brooke Thompson, as well as Joshua Chenoweth, restoration ecologist working for the Yurok tribe on the revegetation of the Klamath River in its soon-to-be undammed life. After a 50-year fight in late 2022, final approval made it through all of the powers that be for the removal of four dams on the Klamath River, and planning for this victory has been in the process for many years. While most of the revegetation is for the drier ecosystems of the upper Klamath, the plan impacts the entire watershed. As we come back, Brooke and Joshua are sharing more about the pre-dam ecology of the Klamath River, the ideal they're working towards in the revegetation planning over time and space.
2: Yeah, so my experience is really with downriver, the word Yurok, my tribe actually translates to downriver people. And for me, the stories I heard from my grandfather about what it should look like is he said that there were so many salmon that would swim in the river that you could walk across their backs to the other side. And also with the redwood trees, a lot of even though people come and visit and see these beautiful large redwood trees in our area very often for ecotourism, a lot of those are second growth redwoods. Traditionally, the redwoods should be even larger in the areas I'm living in. And while we're on the subject of the plants in the downriver basin to the ones that really come to mind are the basket weaving materials we have, such as spruce roots, willow, alder, and black maiden hair fern. And for us, basket weaving is really important to our culture and our daily lifestyle. And we use all these plants in various ways to make baskets for everyday tasks, from holding water to collecting fire sticks, to our ceremonial baskets, cap hats that we wear in our ceremonies for world healing and because of pesticide use a lot of these plants have harmful pesticides that are still persistent even though they were banned many years ago and continue to give health issues to tribal members so for me an idealistic environment would be seeing these species thrive not be toxic to us to use anymore. And eventually seeing the redwoods come back in their full glory and having the ability of having the hundreds of years to reach their full size, which also affects the fog in the area, which is beneficial to other plants and animals as well. And it's also the reduction of invasive species, which I'm sure Joshua will talk about as well, because for example, many people eat blackberries in the grocery store, but not realizing those are Himalayan or other type of invasive blackberry species. But we have native blackberry species and other native Mm -hmm. berry species that we eat quite often, like thimbleberry or salmonberry and huckleberries. But these invasive species take over um, the native species, such as the native blackberry, which are smaller and lower growing and kill them off. And really, I, feels so bad for everyone who's never had a native blackberry before because despite being smaller they are so sweet and tasty and i would love to see the removal of some of these invasive species in return for the diversity which is also important for climate change to have these native species come back and become popularized
0: yeah yeah beautiful i can see that too i can see you know the redwoods creating their own weather system and that weather system being beneficial to all of those understory plants that are fed by the exact same things and that fog and you know i can think of the the ferns and the trillium and the um and the grasses and um yeah beautiful and and all those berries um so joshua let let's go to you paint a picture for for us if you will of of maybe what these ecosystems were and and maybe these are the the visions you are holding in mind um as part of the revegetation plan, you are going to move forward with.
1: Sure. But I, I want to just second uh, Brooke's notion on the native blackberry. It is the tastiest berry in the world.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rubus is so
1: good. Uh, so the upper basin is quite different. Um, what, what's unique about the Klamath is that it travels multiple ecosystems before it comes to the ocean. Um, it starts in the, essentially the great basin uh, mm-hmm. desert, Um and travels through two mountain ranges. It, it goes through the Cascades um, and then travels through the klamath before it reaches the ocean. Quite, quite uh, unique to see a river do that. So the upper basin, as you can imagine, is very different from uh, the Redwoods and the lower basin, which gets a lot more moisture. The average uh, rain per year in the Iron gate Copco stretch of the uh, project is about 20 inches a year. Um, and it gets up into the nineties on average throughout July and August, so very hot, very dry, mm-hmm. and the result, actually interestingly enough, is probably more diversity than you would normally have if you had more moisture and milder temperatures. And the reason for that is, you know, you you, you get specialists that come in, right? Plant specialists, if you will, and. Um, Oak woodlands uh, tend to be the dominant feature on north-facing slopes or east-facing slopes. Um, on south-facing slopes, you tend to get grasslands um, or chaparral uh, communities, which are just desert uh, shrub plants. Uh, up higher, as you move upstream, you you do find some mm-hmm. ponderosa pine forest communities, um, and then of course the mm-hmm. riparian zone. Is is narrow uh, because it's so warm, uh, but you tend to get uh, cottonwoods and willows and, and, and actually quite a bit of, of plant diversity. What you would ideally want in, in these are, are native dominated uh, communities. These are uh, really healthy, interesting places when when natives uh, are when you have a native rich, um, undisturbed uh, landscape. Uh, unfortunately these landscapes uh, have been impacted heavily more by uh, human use than by the dams itself so it's mostly cattle right. grazing and wild horses that have led to a, a shift to to um, um, non-native species especially dominating grasslands which have become really species mm. poor um, and so what we're hoping to do in these in these reservoirs is um, is introduce that uh, native component that should be in that area. Um, enhance the pollinator habitat because, you know, as we all know, um, pollinators are struggling in today's world, uh, from mostly from loss of habitat. Um, so we're hoping to really bring in a lot of pollinator-rich species. Um, the oak woodland restoration is an excellent opportunity to expand that. Oak woodlands have been suffering from a, a reduction in habitat And as you can imagine, oak woodlands have a lot of cultural importance as well as ecological. Um, So it's an excellent opportunity for us to try to expand some of those ranges and get some younger oak woodlands started. And then in the riparian zone, we're battling kind of the same thing as they are in the lower river. And that is the the Himalayan blackberry is kind of one of our biggest uh, invasive species. Um, We just did a survey upriver uh, upriver of uh, Copco and found that it Covered up to 70 to 80% of the riparian forest, had at least 50 to mm-hmm. 75% cover of Himalayan blackberry. And when that species comes in, it really reduces the abundance of natives and just the overall richness of species. So, so just fewer species overall because it's evergreen, it yeah. makes that thicket, um, and you're not going to find the tasty native berry. And you should, <laughs> it should be there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit of some of the scope in the upper river. Um let's go back now and I'm going to stick with you for a second Joshua. Take us back to when you were first brought on to this project and and the the conceiving of the revegetation of this massive dam removal. Um And maybe talk about if there are different phases anticipated for the revegetation. And, um, and then we can get into, uh, we'll unpack a little bit more of that scope and process between you and, and Brooke, but start with, you know, the, the history of the revegetation plan when you were brought on and and who are the, the stakeholders who are contributing to this uh, revegetation plan.
1: So, this project is led by K- KRRC, which is the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, a nonprofit corporation formed for the exclusive purpose of removing the dams. It's a partnership between the tribes, the state of California, the state of Oregon, and uh, um, conservation groups and uh, commercial fishermen. It was formed, I believe, in 2011 or 12 uh, after an attempt to. Uh, have this be a federal project failed in Congress. They uh, created the original revegetation plan through a partnership with some of the federal agencies. Um, there, w- there was a version of, of the Reservoir Action Management Plan from 2011, had that kind of first effort to try to figure out the reveg piece. Um, AECOM was the engineering firm that um, helped KRRC come up with an uh, a version of the reveg plan that then could be let for contracts. Um, that process was in 2018 and 19. And then the contracts were um, awarded to Kiwit for the actual dam removal and Resource Environmental Solutions for all of the natural resource restoration work. So that firm, which is called RES for short, hired the Yurok tribe to help with the revegetation planning and implementation. So when I came down on the project in 2019, they were actually, had had already made some headway to, to try to come up with plans that would be submitted to FERC to try to get this project through uh, their appropriate permitting process. I helped kind of craft it at the end, if you will, um, which was essentially what plant materials are we gonna use, how much do we need, and what species are we targeting, right? Um, so, mm-hmm. so early in the process, I also started collecting a lot of that seed with a crew in 2019, a Yurok crew. So we hired, um, Yurok tribal members and actually some Karuk tribal members to start collecting seed in 2019. And as you can imagine, it's two, over 2000 acres of land. And so, um, uh, it takes a while to get the materials you need to do this work.
0: Yeah. Well, and the complications of uh, the collecting the seed and then growing the seed out in order to collect more seed to grow enough out uh, for this level of coverage is a a monumental task. And um, well done you all for having as much foresight as you did have in advance of the even approval, final approval of these dams coming down. Brooke, tell us about your role in in the project, and then we'll get into the specifics.
2: Yeah. So with my role, specifically revegetation, was having a brief but very privileged amount of time to work with Joshua and his team in the summertime, doing some of the work he was talking about with seed collection and sorting. And for me, it's a bit different than engineering, which is a lot of design work, for example, but it was some of the most fun I had all summer, honestly. And Mm -hmm. I want to stress the importance of having tribal members do this revegetation and seed collection work, because for all these people that are collecting these seeds and spending this time over the summer doing work under Joshua's team, it's not a job to them it's a way to reconnect to their culture it's a way to understand these species more for future generations it just goes a lot further than a paycheck and for me being able to see tribal members again be able to have relationships with these plants that we haven't had relationships with for a very long time and having a very good understanding that these plants are living creatures and that they should be respected versus, you know, let's just harvest as many seeds as we can and we don't care what the plant feels and just get the job done type of mindset, versus people on the team will actually talk to the plants and let them know that they're being collected for the revegetation work and that because traditionally we wouldn't collect all the seeds or all the berries from plants. And for us, it's kind of counter to our culture. So that's why there's this communication that happens when we're taking all the seeds we can for this revegetation effort and letting them know that Mm. they're going to help with this larger effort to make the Klamath River better. And just seeing that level of connection and also just friendship with the revegetation work goes a lot deeper than I think you're able to see on the reports that come out about it on the memos and pieces of paper. And hopefully will influence the future. Cause one of the things I've heard Joshua talk about that's difficult is that there's not an exact guidebook on how to regrow all these native plants or exactly mm-hmm. when their berries are going to be here and exactly when, you know, all these specifics happen around these native plant species that might not be so common, like for say, in like a household garden or lawn in these Mm -hmm. specific ecological zones. And so re-understanding these plants and having tribal members really look and tell me, oh, this plant bloomed at this time last year, but because of this weather, we're thinking maybe it'll be at this time this year or later in the year. And that these berries were really prevalent two years ago, but not so much last year, but it seems to be every other year they have a really good bloom in these berries. And for me, them going above and beyond their job and seeing these tiny observations that might help in the future is really inspirational to me and then um, on top of that right now I'm helping with a native plant list and the native words for these different plants we're replanting in the different cultures and tribes along the Klamath river and seeing what those words are why some words exist and we can't find other words and maybe some of the grammatical breakdown on what those words mean and how they can help us in revegetation efforts. And please, please feel to make any corrections or edits to that, Joshua. That
1: sounded great. <laughs> no edits needed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, and just all those different levels of connection and reconnection, specifically reconnection in the face of um, this, this, you know, If you think of the river as a being and you think of these plants as beings, that brutal uh, disconnection is making me very moved to think about those reconnections, Brooke. Um, Tell us a little bit more about the process you use to approach the revegetation planning from when you first started.
1: Sure. um, As as Brooke said, really, you know, it all it always takes an intimacy with the landscape to learn these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I was mm-hmm. probably the first one to come down on this project and actually be here long enough to make those determinations. Um, you know, prior to that, there, there there's not a lot of botanists in the world. Um, and there's not a lot of botanists that are dedicated to the upper Klamath, for instance. Right. There's no agency that controls it all or, um, you know, so. So it was challenging at first for me because I was coming from a different ecosystem and, uh, you know, I kind of have a bias towards what I knew and there were species that are in both places and they, you know, were selected by my predecessors. And so of course I kind of latched onto them a little bit because I had to, I had to, I had to move forward with something. The first year that I was here, you know, for the summer, I went out and and started doing some plots and really getting to know the landscape. So, both using science, but also just using, you know, just my own sense of of place by walking around uh, multiple times throughout the year, right? Because a plot is one time in, you know, one snapshot in time, but but places like Mm -hmm. this that are hot, uh, and and most places, you know, you'll see a different suite of species throughout the growing season, and so it's important always to kind of just be out there as much as possible, Um, and so that process led to quite a shift in the species list um, so that we weren't focusing on just, you know, the ones that really weren't that abundant on the landscape. Now, with that being said, it's really important to note that there could be species that you don't see on the landscape that are important, that should be abundant. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a bit of a balance. And, and sometimes you don't have, there's not much to go by, right? There's not um, 100 years of data, right, that I can say, well, look, 100 years ago, this species was really prominent before cattle, you know, really altered the landscape. Um, we don't have that, and there's not really a lot of existing intact ecosystems to use as a reference, particularly for this upper Klamath, which is very unique. I mean, I look around at Iron Gate and Copco Reservoirs, um, and if I look a little bit north in the Rogue Valley or a little bit south in the Shasta Valley, it's different, right? This is a pretty unique spot, um, and so you use your best judgment. Um, It ends up being a little bit uh, biased towards what you can get, right? Because it's important that your seed source is relevant. Yeah. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be right in the Klamath. You know, you could go to an adjacent watershed if you think it's going to work and be appropriate and survive. And it's important um, either to pollinators or cultural use. Um, So all of that goes into making your choice. And then a propagator has to be able to produce it. So for this project and for most dam removals, the most important uh, step is seeding your entire landscape first, you know, providing a native uh, carpet of seed.
0: This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation this week with Yurok tribal member and civil engineer, Brooke Thompson, and Joshua Chenoweth, restoration ecologist, working for the Yurok tribe on the revegetation, planning and planting, following the removal of four dams on the Klamath River, set to begin in 2023. We'll be back for more from Joshua and Brooke about this hopeful and historic project. Stay with us. Hey, so a quick heads up. I'm going to be at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens Spring Garden Symposium on Saturday, January 28th, as their closing speaker for the day. If you're in the area and can make it, please make sure to come up and introduce yourself to me so I can say hello, meet you in person, and thank you for being out there listening. More 2023 dates are being added to my events calendar regularly. To see if I might be coming to your area this year, check out Cultivating Place forward slash events for all the details. I am so looking forward to meeting many of you in 2023. We're back now to our conversation with Yurok tribal member and civil engineer Brooke Thompson and restoration ecologist Joshua Chenoweth. As we come back, Joshua is sharing more about the specifics of the revegetation plan and its almost 100 plant species being restored.
1: So, what we're discussing as far as the seed production, that's for when they remove the dams and the reservoirs are drained. And so what's nice about a project like this is that's a brand new landscape. I don't have to remove invasives because there's nothing there. Right, okay. We do invasive removal work in the surrounding landscape to try to minimize the natural recruitment of uh, non-native seed into this new landscape. Gotcha. Um, But all of the propagation that we do, all the planting that we do is primarily for after dam removal. We do actually seed and plant some of these areas where we're trying to manage invasive species prior to dam removal. It's just not as big of a lift Mm -hmm. as the actual reservoir footprints, right? Going
0: to be. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And so as you can imagine, you need a lot of seed, 2000 acres. Mm. And so you need people who know how to take what you can collect in the wild, which you're lucky to get five to 10 pounds, maybe 20 pounds of seed, uh, clean seed from uh, a target species and then you give it to uh, a propagator who has the experience uh, usually with that species. And sometimes they don't, and so they're winging it. Um, And they plant it out in a farm environment um, where they can clean a field up to an acre, two acres, sometimes more. uh, Sow that five to 10 pounds that you've provided and then harvest um, for a few years. If it's a perennial species, they can harvest for a few years. Off of those one to two acres, you know, sometimes again, sometimes more. And and over a few years, you can actually start getting to the volume you're going to need. This project is trying to get 40, 60, maybe 80,000 pounds of seed. Um,
0: Wow. Wow. And
1: actually, I like to say it's really about the actual number of seeds, not so much the pounds, because that is super variable by species. So we're trying to get 19 billion. Viable seeds. Wow, um. <laughs> wow,
0: and we will be hearing from um, uh, Pat Reynolds of Heritage Growers in a in a seed series, sort of related to this series, but uh, a little bit later in the in the season to talk about exactly what that aspect you know that little key in this or link in this chain, what that looks like. Okay. So maybe keep going. God, billions of seeds. I love it. It's just, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> um, so yeah. you, keep keep us going. You're going to seed first and then.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of things to consider when you seed. Ideally you draw down the reservoir Um, and you do it sometime February or March, and it would stay drawn down, there'd be no more refilling of the reservoir, you'd see the entire landscape, you know, before anything else gets in there. Um, And then you would plant. So we're going to do some planting as well. So we are growing out some trees and shrubs, so that we can plant uh, oak woodlands, ponderosa pine forests and riparian forests, um, and some chaparral. We're also gonna produce some herbaceous plugs. So even though we're seeding a lot of species, many species don't do well in a seed increase program. So in that farm environment I mentioned. So those species that the the crew collects and we just start banking it and we either um, directly sow that wild seed um, in special locations because we don't have enough for 2000 acres or we'll take that seed Um, and send it to um, a nursery that can then grow them into plugs. So one-year-old plants, uh, like you would plant in your garden. Um, And we're doing both of those things. We're going to do that direct soap piece, but we're also going to produce that herbaceous plant so that we could accelerate uh, and diversify that pollinator habitat, um, which tends to be hand-in-hand with culturally important plants, right? And there's a reason for that, right? Cultural, uh, traditional ecological knowledge has long recognized um, the ecologically important plants. And they tend to understand that to the point where they preserve that uh, plant and don't over harvest it for their use. Um, and so we're going to be increasing both things, you know, the pollinator habitat and also the, so a lot of these plants that are traditionally important. right? And by, by doing it with a plug, you get a little bit more, you get an older plant, right? So maybe it'll bloom before yep. the stuff that was seeded um, right. and provide that uh, pollinator habitat early.
0: And you get this nice succession, which allows for the, the seedlings to be, have a little bit more of a competitive edge a little bit later.
1: Yeah, I mean, the entire, we're, we're hoping to get everything in before the non-natives to do that competitive edge. And we and you never know what's going to work, right? Despite the fact that right. there's, I've worked on other LWA pro, you know, other dam removal projects like the LWA. Um so you want to, it, it's kind of a hedge your bets thing to introduce different plant materials into your project. So so directly sowing the seed, actually producing some container plants, and then doing some bare root introductions. And so that diversity and high density of stuff, we're hoping will then, uh, you know, it's not all going to work. But uh, if enough of it works, then we've helped um, it, uh, jumpstart the process um, and, yeah. and get things going faster than if it was left to naturally regenerate.
0: Yeah. Can you give us a before we move back to Brooke? Can you give us an overview of um, some of this species uh, diversity, and you know what what your species diversity was just in a number, and then sure. d- describe a handful, and maybe describe how you came up with that combination. Like, did you think? Canopy mid-story ground, did you just think kind of open grassland and so you needed a suite of different kinds of plants, bulbs, herbaceous, annuals, you know, like give us that overview as well, Joshua.
1: Sure. So we've collected, I think we're at about 96 different species for this project. Um, Great. As far as the seed mix, um, I think it's about, as far as, you know, the seed that's actually in this, uh, farm production, it's around 38 different species. Um, so that gives us a lot of flexibility. You know, some of the stuff is, a uh, you know, there is a difference at JC Boyle compared to the lower reservoirs. So, you know, elevationally. So some of this is for high elevation, some of it's for low elevation. Um, we, uh, because it's a primary succession environment in other words it's nothing's there it's starting from scratch Um, what survives in a primary sear environment might not be the same as what you'd expect in some of the climax species that you find there so so i don't worry i tend i tend to take that approach of well let's just put it all there because sometimes that late seral species will be present might not be dominant uh, but you want it there you. in the beginning and so you kind of let you introduce all as much of it as you can right because you can't do mm-hmm. all of it <laughs> and you right. let the system work itself out um my my goal and in, in, in my job my goal is to introduce so much diversity and richness as possible because no one knows how it will respond and there's no way to predict it so hence that you know i just try to get as many species in production as possible and then supplement it with the wild collected seed and the plugs and then plant the uh, woody species with a, as much diversity as I can. Trying to target uh, environmental conditions, particularly for you know aspect, right? Because it is such a hot place. Um, so we do let that dictate um, what species go where and we will change the ratio. So, so in, on my seed mix, I might put species all over the reservoir. With an understanding that maybe the north-facing stuff's going to be more abundant in some species than others, and so I'll change the ratio based on that. As far as uh, individual species that are of importance, so when it comes to uh, the herbaceous seed, I would say, um, you know, some of the grasses are kind of key keystone species, right? So Festuca idahoensis, um, so Idaho fescue. Um, is incredibly important, um, is a foundational species in, in a lot of grasslands throughout North America. And it is all over, it, it is common around Iron Gate, so we were able to get a lot of that. Um, Lemons needlegrass is another important species, um, which the current name is Stipa lemonii. Um, we have blue bunch wheatgrass, which is current current name is Elemis spicatus. Those are kind of my three go to grass species. They We we do find them in the open, hot uh, grasslands where there's good native diversity still. Um, And and I consider them kind of the most important for my foundational seed mix. Um, We supplement that with a lot of forbs as well. So Oregon sunshine is one of my favorites. That's a species that we actually used on the Elwha as well. And it did really well in all of our different environments. And it is very abundant around Iron Gate and Copco. Um, And we do find it up at J.C. Boyle as well. So that's a great species, does really well in these seed increase fields. Um, So we're working on uh, getting enough of that. Um, And then we have a lot of kind of um, not traditional species that we're working on. So the lomations are very important uh, culturally, but also ecologically. Uh, They have a, a, a vibrant role in the oak woodlands, um and so that one does not do well in these seed increase fields so we those are species we're just wild collecting and kind of direct sow because nobody can really propagate them as plugs either for some reason Hmm. they don't like that (laughs) they don't like nurseries maybe they're not uh uh, being taken care of in the right way um and so having native uh you know the tribal members collect these species carefully (laughs) and with a conscience i think could really help um and so we've got a lot of that uh, waiting for direct sow. Um, and then uh, another species that's of great importance to a lot of uh, you know, federal agencies, and as well as uh, cultural use is um, uh, the milkweeds. So um, we've done a lot of milkweed collection. We do have some specialists that can produce rhizomes. Uh, so they, they have fields growing and they pull the rhizome up and, and, and give us the rhizome to plant which is a great way to introduce that species. Um, and we're also doing some plugs for a different milkweed species, the a narrow leaf milkweed. Um, and those are the best ways to introduce those species. They don't really do well from direct sowing. Um, and they're incredibly important, uh, particularly when you consider the plight of the monarch butterfly. Um, and that is a, uh, they, they need milkweeds uh, to reproduce. So any opportunity to expand that <laughs> habitat is, is preferred. In fact, I'm growing it in my garden from some of the <laughs> some of the seed we've collected and found two milkweed caterpillars last year in the summer, which to me was, you know, kind of that's just the greatest experience. I was yeah, so really excited that on my little yeah. teeny plot of land I could have some milkweed and some yeah. butterflies.
0: <laughs> so maybe let's move now back to you, Brooke, um, and uh, maybe share a little bit more about your uh your continued contribution to the project and some of the culturally important plants and the the species diversity as well. The, you know, I want to point out that that one thing you said, Joshua, about this lack of a hundred years of knowledge of what these plants and places should have been like post-damming, you know, is is not it's not that it wasn't there. It's what's that it was destroyed as well when um, you know, through uh Native American uh attempted genocide and um displacement, uh that hundred that hundred years of knowledge was there and it was removed in uh colonization. And that's one of the connections that uh hopefully the capacity is um is being reinvigorated uh with the help of every single human possible. Um, Brooke, let's go to you now and and your sort of view of this species diversity. And, you know, I think I should point out, and Joshua, maybe you can chime in or Brooke, you can... Um, that 91 or 90-something 90 species might seem really diverse, but we are talking about one of the most biodiverse river systems um, in, in that eventually ends up in the Klamath region, which is one of the biodiversity hotspots in the California floristic region, which is another biodiversity hotspot on the planet. So 91 is a great start, but it's a seriously rich space.
2: Yeah, um, Josh, Joshua, feel free to correct me, but... For me with the biodiversity, I guess, question you said was not just biodiversity with the number of species, but within species itself, I would assume is important too. And how each of these species are slightly different and over time and over areas, which helps for resiliency. And since I'm not a biologist and I'm not a botanist, this isn't my expertise, but I know that's true with salmon per se. And so I think that's also important in the diversity. But for me, like you said, with the knowledge, language revitalization is a part of restoration work because the more people who understand the language and are able to piece together things their grandparents said and their great-grandparents said to them that maybe they couldn't understand because we have what we call an English mindset and then a Yurok mindset where how we understand language really informs our understanding of the world. For example, in Yurok, there's not a direct translation for the word sorry. And that's because you're expected when you're actually feeling our equivalent of sorry for something, you either make a payment to that person that you feel bad about. And that includes plants too. Well, sometimes tribes will make payments of dentilium or money to plants. Um, but to either pay for it or to do an action about it. You aren't expected to just say a word like you are in English and be forgiven or assume that's all right. And that's just one example of how the English mindset and the Yurok mindset's different. But by having more people understand our indigenous languages that were forcefully removed, like with my grandfather who was taken to boarding school. So he was pretty much, didn't, he grew up speaking our native language and grew up fairly traditionally with his grandparents who only spoke Iraq language. And he literally said how he tried to hide under his bed from federal agents who grabbed his ankles and literally drove him to a car to send him to the Sherman boarding school in Southern California to forget his language and to force him to look upon our culture negatively. And he still remembered the language regardless though, and helped Many other younger people like me learn it to a certain extent, but there's not enough language learners and I don't think there's enough funding that goes towards language because it's not seen as connected to these larger other climate and environmental issues. But for me, they can really be symbiotic and beneficial to each other. And even with um, other nations such as Māori, I've heard of stories of when people learn their language putting together pieces of wayfinding which is traditional navigation of ocean canoes and having a better understanding of how to do that practice because they learned their language and finally understood some of the things their grandparents were saying and so it's not that this knowledge is completely lost but it's definitely not as prevalent as it should be and I do believe we have time to bring some of it back that can be beneficial to future revegetation efforts and not only the Klamath, but many other places in the United States. And so yeah, that's just the one large point I wanna make that language holds a lot of this knowledge about plants and that can be beneficial to us in the future. Can
0: you give an example? Because I have, I believe heard you you speak about this before but also read about this, but in many ways, the native, um, any native language words for plants or name, you know, what we would call a name for a plant often includes botanical or phenological or morphological information about the plant itself. And so in knowing the name, you automatically are learning the biology and ecology of the plant, or at least some of it.
2: Yeah. So in the Yurok language, for example, the word for trillium also has a part of the word that means flint in it. And our thought is that this helps with identification of the plant. So if you've seen a Trillium plant, it's a white plant that has three white leaves that are kind of in shapes of large triangles all the way down even the base where the green leaves are. And so Flint, which is a type of rock that is often shaped into a spear shape, so also a triangular shape. For us, this probably means that you can identify a trillium plant by looking at its leaf shape, which is shaped like a flint in that triangle pattern. And there's also, for another example off the top of my head, is red huckleberry, which has parts of the word for bush and berry in it, and then also has information about that fresh berries can be eaten and that the branches can be used as a broom. So you have that understanding of what the plant can be used for if you can eat it or not, and just almost every word has some type of understanding of how to identify it, where it grows, or what it can be used for in the word itself.
0: As you, you know think about your time helping collect, as you think about your, um, your insights as a civil engineer, as a, uh, a person of for whom this place is home or parts of it are home, um, the downriver parts. Uh what do you see in that species diversity um that you might want to point out for listeners? There needs to be more <laughs>
2: <laughs> always. Always. Um yeah, I mean I feel like this might be a better question for Joss because our revegetation effort is really in the northern part of the Klamath mm-hmm. River and my home is in the southern part. But my just very little and humble understanding of the area is that we have these different zones that need these different plant species to really thrive and that are beneficial not only for creating habitat for species that we want in the area, like Josh said, Joshua said, with pollinators and the different invertebrates and insects that create a really healthy ecosystem which right then brings in birds which has all these other effects and are interconnected but the diversity that can hold up for resiliency with the changing climate and that when we have these different types of weather patterns that aren't as usual because of climate change that there'll be enough diversity in these plants to hold up over the long haul and please add to that Joshua and correct me.
1: Sure. No, I mean, I think that explains it well. And I agree with everyone that it's not enough, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we have identified over 351 species in the Project REACH. That's not all of them. That's just what we've seen in our plots and in our everyday operations. Um, Probably about one third of that or more are not native. Um, So we're still talking about, you know, a lot of natives that are not being represented in our seed mix or our Uh, propagation. You know, it's always a challenge when you're doing restoration work to be able to get everything you want. Again, you have to factor in whether the seed's available. Um, If so, is it easy to get? Is it easy to collect? Can you get enough? Um, Can somebody propagate that? Or are you just going to wild collect and clean and store? And even if you could do that with every single native species out there, you're limited by the number of hours in the day. And the number of hands that you can pay to do this work. So, you know, it's a pretty good number in the scheme of restoration to say that we are going to introduce up to 100 different native species. Uh, so I feel pretty good about that. Um, but yeah, especially the bigger your landscape, the more diversity you want. And, you know, the, the nice thing about this project is we're not done.
2: Right. right? right.
1: So um, we're looking to have at least um, two to three full time seed collectors working. For several more years. And so um, we'll we'll look for more opportunities, particularly if we're seeing that some of the species we've we've introduced are not doing well. Um, You know, we're adaptively managing this project and we have that support from Res and KRC to do that. So all our partners agree, diversity, 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 and adaptively manage as we go.
0: Yeah. So finally, I would love to to end with having each of you um, sort of maybe share what your greatest hopes are, or if there's anything you would like to add about the impact of this work and your, um, your experience being part of it. Let's start with you, Joshua, and end with you, Brooke.
1: Well, for me, this is... Um... This is my second dam removal project, and there, as far as I understand it, there has not really been any other large dam removal projects with a reveg program. So it's a it's a bit of an opportunity for me to see and to learn um, from another project, and to try to use um, our observations, um, and uh, you know, using some of the same methods as the LWA to to basically help um, future uh, project managers you know make good choices. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's an honor to be working for the Yurok tribe, um, and to really, you know, learn from them. Um, and I'm hoping to make sure that's well incorporated in everything that we do and in, um, and, and, hopes, hope that element, that traditional ecological knowledge piece, um, is, is even more important in future projects, because I think there is a lot we can learn there. Yeah. Brooke.
2: Yeah, for me, one of my hopes, I think, that your listeners could accomplish themselves is just a reconnection with understanding of plants. So, if you have a plant at home, well, I'm sure everyone who's listening has at least one plant (laughs) at home, but with one of your plants at home, you know, you can read all these books about how to perfectly grow that plant, what soil it needs, what temperature it needs, where the best sunlight is. But truly, your environment's going to be a unique micro climate and ecosystem for that plant. So not just relying on the books you're reading, but taking time to really look at the plant, notice when it wants more water, when it doesn't, when it seems to be growing best in the air, when it doesn't, what other plants it likes being around and taking that time to have that personal observation with you and that plant. And, you know, maybe just taking some time to talk to it. I feel like some of this is comes off as like kind of hippy dippy <laughs> <laughs> woo woo type of stuff. But there's really benefits that do come out of it, having that understanding that a plant's a living creature and that the world's not just circling around you, but your home is also home to these plants as well. And what, what I mean, there's even simple things that happen that I think stress the importance of plants. Like, you know, when we make wills, we might say what happens to our pets when we pass away and who takes care of them, but what about our plants? What, what happens to them like they're also a living part of your home and your family and so just trying to reestablish that connection and personal observation and understanding with plants in your daily life and that we're not just the supreme species on this planet and that we're also living here with not only a diversity of people by diversity of plants and they have inherent rights to be and survive as well and that's also coming from an indigenous place too that we only have one in my tribe plant that we farm and that is tobacco because it's a very spiritual plant for us and we'll plant it well that's the only one we specifically plant in places or in containers because all the other plants are in abundance so we might have managed them but tobacco is very important for us to actually take notice of and where it's at and planted. So yeah, just reestablish your connections with your plants. And yeah, after this episode, go and have a conversation. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> with your nearest plant friend. I love it with all of your plant friends. Thank you. I
1: agree with that. Talk to your plants,
0: talk to your plants <laughs> and listen to them because they're, they're talking too, um in different ways. <laughs> That's a good uh, point. <laughs> Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today and, and thank you for the work you are doing. I just, it is an exciting, exciting time and I wish all the best to you both as it progresses. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's a privilege being here. Brooke Thompson is a Yurok tribal member, a civil engineer, with her master's in water resources, and she is a Ph.D. student in environmental studies at UC Santa Cruz. Joshua Tanwith is a restoration ecologist working for the Yurok tribe on the revegetation, planning, planting, and long-term maintenance of the revegetation of the Klamath River following the removal of four dams, which is set to begin in 2023. For my full conversation with Joshua and Brooke on this large scale and historic revegetation project in process, as well as many images from Brooke and Joshua, make sure to check out this week's show notes with links to the full Cultivating Place podcast all at cultivatingplace.com under the podcast tab. And of course, Cultivating Place is available wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, love Speaking of plants and place, continuing our discussion of conservation and biodiversity and we as gardeners being powerful partners in supporting biodiversity through good garden plants that bring high habitat value, this week we regale the genus Ribes, the only genus in the Gooseberry family, Grossulariaceae. Ribes includes upwards of 150 species naturally occurring across the northern hemisphere and in the Andes of South America. According to the U.S. Forest Service Celebrating Wildflowers website, which is an excellent resource by the way, ribes are generally fairly low-growing, woody shrubs occurring from dry chaparral environments all the way to moisture-loving shade of coastal forests. In the genus, those species with spiny stems are commonly referred to as gooseberries, and those without spines or bristles on their stems are called currants. All of these often flamboyantly flowering shrubs, most of whose flowers hold pretty nicely in a vase or an arrangement, produce succulent berries, and some of these produce succulent, colorful berries from pink to red to orange. And some of these berries are also notably and interestingly spined or bristled. And these berries provide colorful and ample food for us as well as for wildlife, from insects to birds to mammals. Here in interior northern California, the earliest of the ribes, the California endemic Ribes malvacium, also known as chaparral current, starts to bloom in late December or early January and goes right through to March. In the exposed, often very dry chaparral, these graceful pink pendant multi-flowered clusters of this current are not only lighting up these ecosystems, but offering important early nectar for the first native bees and the overwintering resident hummingbirds. From there, the show goes on across North America, starting with the pink to red ribes sanguinium blooming from January through May, and then moving to the more woodland-loving, fragrant, yellow-flowered Ribes orium and its close Midwestern relative, Ribes odoratum, also called clove-scented currant. These grow in both dry uplands and moister forests and riparian corridors. In Colorado, we called Ribes odoratum buffalo currant. In my first California garden, the spicy scent of the foliage of the evergreen Ribes Viburnifolium made a great ground cover in the dry soil under native oaks. And with its low growing habit and lacy delicate late spring flowers, it was a favorite. Ribes bractiosum, sometimes known as stink current, grows throughout the northwest of California and the Klamath Ranges and redwood forests there. This one blooms later in the season, from May into June, which extends the period of blooming and fruiting for both humans and wildlife. With relatively low water or fertility needs in cultivation, with its adaptability and interesting flowers and foliage providing forage and larval associations for moths and butterflies, you just can't go too far wrong with one or two native currants in your garden. Research the ribes native to your area and let me know how they grow for you. Join us again next week when we broaden our view from this week's focus on revegetation planning for the undamming of the Klamath to take a broader look at the river's namesake region and the importance of knowing any place better from multiple lenses for the most effective conservation to be truly possible. We're in conversation with Michael Kaufman and Justin Garwood, editors of a comprehensive new natural history of the Klamath Mountains. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation, empowering women and helping preserve the planet through environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, public radio exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.